good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, 25th series of Lionel Robbins Lectures, quarter centenary, uh, no less. Uh, and we're delighted to have Adair Turner to give this year's series. Um, as you know, Adair is one of our leading public intellectuals in this country, uh, as well as a major player in the public policy world of action. Uh, it's extremely unusual to have uh, that combination. And I think we're incredibly lucky uh, in this country to have somebody who has that analytical gift, which he has, and is actually applying it uh, so near the centre of power. So we've already benefited in Britain uh, from, uh, for example, his important report on pensions, which has already uh, gone into the law. And now the world, hopefully, is going to benefit uh, from his chairmanship of the committee set up by the G20 uh, to recommend uh, the future uh, regulation of the world financial system. Uh, and we'll hear about that uh, in November at the G20 summit. Uh, you, you probably noticed, some of you, that uh, Adair is a very brave and outspoken person. Uh, it's a bit unusual to have the chairman of the Financial Services Authority uh, asking whether the financial sector is socially useful. Um, and he has done just that. Uh, it's, I suppose it's especially uh, interesting when he uh, previously worked for one of the uh, most famous investment banks, which is no longer with us. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> it's good, very good to have you here. Uh, I think uh, Britain is very lucky to have you, and we're lucky to have you uh, with us tonight. Um, Adair has been a very good friend to the LSE. He's helped the Centre for Economic Performance enormously as chairman of its policy committee. He's currently a visiting professor here. And his theme for the three lectures, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, is economics after the crisis. And the lecture today is called, I think you can read it, Economic Growth, Human Welfare and Inequality. Adair. Uh, Richard, thank you. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The capitalist system two years ago went through a great crisis, and after that crisis, at the time of that crisis, uh, there were a lot of descriptions of what an enormous event it was. The prospects for the economy were sometimes described in apocalyptic terms. A new Great Depression was upon us. There was a talk about a paradigm shift in political economy, the end of an era of unfettered Anglo-Saxon finance capitalism. And there was talk about what had occurred being not just a failure of a financial system, but a failure of economics. Uh, Robert Skidelsky, for instance, in a book which was both brilliant and brilliantly timed, talked about uh, the return of the master, uh, John Maynard Keynes, and talked about the need for us to reconstruct economics. So what has happened to those visions of apocalyptic results and radical change? Well, the good news is that the impact on the economy, although it has been very bad, has been nothing like as bad as the Great Depression of 1929 to 33. 
And that reflects the fact that we have learned some things uh, in economics, and precisely because we knew some of the lessons to draw from 1929 to 33, we didn't do them again this time round. The political response has been mixed. There has been, neither in America nor in the UK nor in Europe, any overall shift uh, towards the left, no overall rejection of capitalism. Uh, there is certainly a vilification of bankers, uh, but there is not a sense that there is a clear belief in a move to a less uh, market uh, economy. A victory by uh, Barack Obama in the uh, US, uh, but by no means a fundamental shift in US political opinion. As for academic uh, economics, well, there has been a lot of uh, people uh, reasserting some a sound, in my opinion, old economic beliefs. And uh, I was very pleased to be at the launch in uh, Cambridge in April of an institute called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Uh, and there is a lot of activity going on. But it is still unclear whether there really will be a generalized shift in the nature of the way that economics is taught and researched across the world. So I think a crucial question which is then worth asking is, should the crash of 2008 prompt a wide set of challenges to economic and political assumptions and economic theory? Because what is possible at the moment is that we are simply going to observe that there was a crash but move on. So should we be asking fundamental questions about economics, policy assumptions, or, should I, or is our challenge essentially just the careful management of the macro challenges created by this depression and the technical things to do with making sure that the uh, financial system is more stable for the future? Uh, that latter being, of course, which, what I spend uh, my day job basically concerned with. And the answer I'm going to give in these three lectures is that it should be the opportunity for a fundamental rethink. Because I believe that the faults of theory and policy which led to the crisis within the financial system were integral elements within a wider set of simplistic beliefs about the objectives and means of economic activity which dominated policy thinking for several decades running up to 2008. That belief system had three key elements. First, the assumption that the objective of successful policy is the maximization of growth in GDP per capita. It's the economy, stupid, said both Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. Second, the assumption that a way, indeed not just a way, but the primary way to achieve increased growth is market liberalization. And third, the assumption that a significant degree of inequality is both the consequence of and necessary for the operation of free markets and is justified because and to the extent that it helps deliver superior growth. This package of beliefs in growth in markets and in inequality as essential to and justified by the growth which it produces I'm going to label the instrumental conventional wisdom, a conventional wisdom in which markets and inequality are justified because they instrumentally help us to achieve economic growth, which is good for happiness. 
But I think we have increasingly realised that it is not at all clear that economic growth should be the overriding objective in rich countries because it's not at all clear that it delivers increases in average happiness or welfare or well-being or whatever you think the aim is. Second, I think that one of the reasons why that might be the case is that we have had increased inequality, which, however, I think may also be the natural consequence of increasing income. And thirdly, while free markets work very well in some areas, they work much less well in other areas of the economy, and in particular, they can work very badly in the financial sector. So the purpose in, of these lectures is to consider each of these challenges to the dominant political ideology and underpinning theory of the last 30 years. And I will do that in three lectures. Lecture one deals with the objectives. Why growth should not be the objective in rich countries. Lecture two with the means. Do free markets, and in particular do free financial markets, maximize efficiency or growth, if you did believe that was the objective, or indeed any other desirable objective? And thirdly, what are the so what's of these? And I will set out there a case for economic freedom as an end per se. I will attempt to look at implications for public policy and indeed for the discipline of economics. And in that final session on the implications for the discipline of economics, I will relate my conclusions to those which were reached 78 years ago by Lionel Robbins in a brilliant essay called uh, On the Nature and Significance of Economic Science, in which Robbins was very careful to be clear as to what we could say about the objectives and the means of economic science, and in which he chose to draw a clear delineation between the subject matter of economics and that of other disciplines, be they politics, psychology, philosophy, ethics. Now, the thrust of my conclusions in the third lecture may seem very different. Indeed, I will agree with Keynes when he said, and I quote, against Robbins, as against Robbins, economics is essentially a moral science. But actually, I believe that a very careful reading of Robbins' essay suggests that that distinction uh, is less uh, real than it first themes, and that in particular, if we had heeded more clearly Robbins' clear statements as to what you can assume and what you can infer from the findings of economics narrowly defined and what you cannot, we might have been more cautious about falling into the instrumental conventional wisdom of the last 30 to 40 years. So let me begin by talking about what that dominant conventional wisdom was. In the late 20th century, the idea that attaining a superior growth rate and thus increased prosperity should be the central objective of public policy became increasingly dominant. It became a key electoral back, uh, a, uh, a battleground in a way that it was not in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Harold Macmillan said, we've never had it so good. Harold Wilson was going to forge prosperity in the white heat of the technological revolution. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's fundamental promise was that she was going to make, after a period of uh, uh, disruption and waking us up, 
uh, the economy more dynamic, more successful, and more prosperous than under Labour. The shared assumption behind that was that economic growth, growth in GDP per capita, was the key to well-being, happiness, and welfare, and that the crucial issue was therefore simply which policies will help us achieve that goal. The conservative narrative, which was asserted with increasing confidence, was that free markets and strong incentives were the best way to deliver this aim of growth, and that significant inequality was acceptable and required because it helped deliver higher growth. Unlike in the 19th century, therefore, where politicians of a conservative disposition justified property rights and inequality as simply conditions of a, national, a natural order, the conservative narrative essentially became that inequality was justified for instrumental reasons. You should vote for low taxes on the rich, Mr. Average Citizen, because they will help make you, the average citizen, richer. That was the fundamental proposition. Parties of the left, meanwhile, had to decide how much of this narrative they accepted. And the responses differed between parties which were fundamentally Marxist and between those societies which were willing to accept the amelioration of working class conditions as an end in itself, rather than as either an impediment to revolution or a stepping stone towards resolution. But although there was a variety, the direction of change was towards at least a partial acceptance of the conservative narrative. The role of social democratic parties became increasingly to smooth the rough distributional edges of the market economy, but the assumption that markets produce growth in GDP, that growing GDP delivers measured welfare, and that inequality is acceptable because and to the extent that it helps deliver growth, that became an increasingly shared consensus. But even as that consensus has grown, it's become increasingly apparent that there is no strong link and possibly no link whatsoever between economic growth and some measures of human well-being or welfare or happiness once one has reached levels of income already reached several decades ago by rich developed countries. And I think that that simple fact has some pretty profound implications, which I will explore in Lecture 3, for appropriate public policy. Now, of course, any discussion of the relationship between income and well-being or happiness raises questions about whether happiness, about which Richard has written a book and indeed is about to start a movement, no less, this great movement of ours, happiness, uh, any such questions raises uh, the issue of whether happiness should be the objective and how we measure and define it. Should we actually aim for happiness, or are there competing objectives, such as justice or freedom uh, in itself? Uh, I think Richard believes he knows the answer to that. I'm not so absolutely clear. I think it is a complex issue to which I don't have clear answers. If you prove to me that the people in the streets of North Korea yesterday were indeed happy in a dictatorial regime, would I consider that a reasonable result? If 99.99% of humanity were made happy by the human sacrifice of the very small remaining minority, presumably we wouldn't be too content uh, with that uh, as a result, uh, even though in some aggregation of utils it might turn out to be a maximizing result. 
As for the issue of how you'd measure happiness, when we ask questions about contentment or life satisfaction or well-being across time and country, how confident can we be that there aren't subtle differences in how people answer those questions which invalidate the conclusions we reach? Now, all of those are non-trivial problems, but I also think they are not fatal to the limited proposition which I will assert, which is not that, I can, that we can define and somehow maximize a gross national happiness index, but simply that we have no good reason to believe that additional growth in average income, as measured by GDP per capita, will tend to increase happiness or well-being or welfare uh, beyond uh, some limit, that it will limitlessly do so, and we have fairly strong grounds for believing that rich developed countries have, on average, moved beyond the relevant limit where any such relationship no longer exists. So with all due caveats about the difficulties of definition and measurement, I'm going to argue and indeed agree with Richard and others that the combination of empirical evidence, a priori logic, and common sense observation of human nature strongly supports those limited conclusions. To begin then with the empirical evidence, there is a whole range of surveys of self-assessed life satisfaction or happiness from different rich countries with different cultures. This chart, for instance, is taken from Bruno Frey and Alois Stutzer's Happiness and Economics, and it shows the results for Japan. Over the last 50 years, a huge increase in real GDP per capita, no increase in self-reported life satisfaction. Similar results from the same book we see for the US. And as for cross-country comparisons, this chart taken from Richard's book, what they suggest is that there is a fairly strong relationship between income per capita, as conventionally measured, and happiness up to some level, but that then it tails off. That between $1,000 a year and $15,000 a year, it makes quite a lot of difference where we are in the prosperity stakes, that beyond about fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year, there is no clear correlation. In stylized form, the empirical evidence is consistent with the assumption that there is a period of increasing income, a range of increasing income, which clearly increases happiness or well-being, but that beyond it, we turn around a curve and that at some stage it becomes a flat line. And we can understand that curve as applying both in a time series in the process of economic development and across countries at any one point in time. Now, of course, the transition from a very low level of income to that enjoyed in rich developed countries today is the great and historically extraordinary achievement of the last 200 years of human history. For pretty much the whole of human history, until about 1000 AD, there is no real evidence that human living standards showed any sustained tendency to increase. Now, of course, that's a statement which is incredibly difficult to quantify, but Angus Madison, in his truly magisterial study of the last 1,000 years, and indeed before, of uh, GDP per capita, uh, attempted uh, that uh, heroic quantification and I think makes a reasonable case that in the year 1000 AD, 
the average per capita GDP of pretty much the whole of the world can be thought of as equal to about 400 to 400, uh, 400 to 450 dollars in a 1990 uh, dollar terms, and that before that, there is no lengthy period in which any uh, country had been at a higher level for a sustained period of time. Obviously, across those millennia of histories, quality of diet and life expectancy varied with the vagaries of war, disease, and climate. Fluctuations in political regimes and culture produced changes in the sophistication and the standard of living of elite groups and their art and architecture. But the modern assumption and reality that each century, and not just each century, but each decade, brings new technologies, new products, increased income, and significantly changed lifestyles that was entirely absent from the pre-modern world. The change which occurred, first in Western Europe and then elsewhere, glacially from 1000 to 1500 AD, then very gradually from 1500 to 1800, and then explosively over the last two centuries, was in a sense the second great transformation in human technology and lifestyle, equivalent in impact to the creation of settled agriculture uh, from about the 8th millennium BC onwards. And that change has transformed life uh, in many ways. It has transformed life expectancy. It has freed people from the drudgery of continual backbreaking work with no leisure. It has abolished in most societies, and increasingly so, the primary detriments to human happiness, such as hunger, early death, and complete lack of clothing or warmth. And it has delivered, subsequently, a cornucopia of material goods and services which delight, intrigue, and stimulate us. It is an extraordinary achievement, it is economic growth, and it has been a very good thing. And as best we can tell, it has significantly increased human happiness, human well-being, self-perceived contentment. And I'd therefore like to be absolutely clear that in what I'm saying today, I still believe that further growth in measured GDP per capita is a priority for the many societies which have still not completed that transition. That it is still a high priority for China which is, as it were, at an intermediate stage in that transition, and that it is vitally important for what Paul Collier has called the bottom billion, concentrated particularly uh, in Africa, which have only made a very small progress along that transition. But my subject matter is not how we achieve growth in Africa or China, how we achieve the transition of low and middle income countries to high income levels, vitally important though that is, but what we can say about the objectives and means of economic policy in already rich societies. And in those, I think the crucial starting point is that it is highly likely that beyond some level there is no clear correlation, there is no clear relationship between further increases in measured economic income and some sense of human well-being or happiness. So why might this breakdown have occurred? Well, in fact, I think there are several easily identifiable reasons, and the fact that they're so easily identifiable is in itself 
a priori support for believing that the empirical, the breakdown which the empirical evidence suggests is actually a real phenomenon. Because actually, given the explanatory factors that we can identify, I think it would be difficult to see how economic growth could be expected to deliver limitless improvements in human contentment. For I believe that the very process of becoming richer itself changes the logical linkages between average income and average contentment. Now, of course, the most obvious reason why there might be a uh, breakdown in the relationship is the simple theory of satiation. Uh, one winter coat keeps you warm, two winter coats uh, don't keep you uh, any warmer. Uh, they simply give you a second-order benefit of a uh, style, fashion, and variety. But although that is true, uh, it is not in itself uh, an explanation for actual flattening uh, of the curve. Uh, because, and of course that insight is formalized in uh, economics within the concept of diminishing marginal utility. But diminishing marginal utility could give us the idea that there might be a weakening relationship between an uh, increasing income and utility, but it could not uh, explain a complete flattening of the curve. And indeed, the issue of whether at the aggregate level it fully explains even significant weakening uh, can be disputed. Because I think it's important to realize that in and of itself, strictly applied, and this was a point actually which Robbins was very careful to make in his essay, the concept of diminishing marginal utility uh, really relates to one particular product relative to all products rather than to aggregate utility. And you could easily say that while our utility in relation to one particular product is continually uh, a flattening out, Surely, as we get satisfied in one product, there are other products spinning up which excite our imagination and which are still perhaps at the steep bit uh, of the curve. Still, however, I think if you play into that some concept of a hierarchy of human needs, we can still create some idea of aggregate satiation, uh, at least to some degree. I think it must be the case that although buying an iPad might make me somewhat happier, it can't be as happy as when I ceased being subject uh, to primary hunger. But what is difficult from the pure process of diminishing marginal utility is to generate a keep complete flattening of the curve. But I think complete flattening, suggested by the empirical evidence, becomes more understandable if we bring into consideration three ways in which, as we get richer, the nature of our consumption patterns significantly change. The first of those ways is that, as we get richer, more of our income is devoted to buying goods which are defined by style, fashion, and brand, and where one of the fundamental purposes of buying them is to prove that we are in with or ahead of the crowd where what matters is relative status, goods such as very, very large handbags. Now, the point about these sorts of goods 
is that the higher other people's incomes, the higher everybody's incomes, the wider the range of goods and services over which this competition for relative status has to range. And therefore, my ability to satisfy my demands for these, and personally, I don't have a great demand for very large handbags, but um, you'll appreciate uh, illustrating the principle, is dependent not just on my income, uh, but on others. The second factor which at work is locationally specific positional goods. The fact that as we get richer, we spend an increasing proportion of our income in competing for the enjoyment of goods which are locationally specific and in inherently a limited supply. We want to go to a beach holiday, and the nicest place to be is on the hotel on the beach, but your ability to be at the hotel on the beach rather than a mile away on the beach has got nothing to do with your absolute income. It's entirely determined by your relative income relative to all others. Similarly, your ability to be on, at the skiing resort on the piste rather than a mile down the valley. Now, skiing pistes and beaches, they may not seem very important, though actually, as we devote more of our income to leisure activities, these are non-trivial parts of our expenditure. But the most important of these, of course, is housing. And as we get richer, a very significant and increasing proportion of our income is devoted to the competition to live in the nicer parts of town or countryside. And in order to win in that competition, really there is no value in having more absolute income. All that matters is your income relative to other people. The third factor, of course, is uh, environmental and congestion externalities. The fact that as we get richer, we can impose externalities which actually degrade the quality of life. Now, some of those, of course, can be themselves fixed by the very process of economic and technological growth. London's local air quality is much better now than it was 60 years ago as we've got rid of uh, the smogs. Some environmental externalities, of course, are more difficult to deal with, and I will refer in Chapter 3 to the challenge of climate change. But one of the important things to realize is that quite apart from these environmental externalities in terms of pollution, there are simply straightforward congestion effects inherent to the very process of getting richer. As we get richer, more people can afford to go to that beach or skiing piste, but precisely because of that, it is more crowded and therefore it is less of a pleasant experience than before. Driving a car along a country road in Britain, in 1950s Britain, was for the minority of people who could then afford a car a more pleasant experience than driving a car along one today for the simple reason that you weren't bumper to bumper in behind the car in front. And a large proportion of our car advertisements on TV, which apparently have been shot at about 4 a.m., on a Sunday morning in the summer in northern Scandinavia are actually inducing us to buy a product which we will never actually enjoy, the product of driving along an empty road. And if you are induced to buy something that you will never actually enjoy, it's not surprising that after a while that doesn't make you much happier. 
Now, all of these three factors together help explain why, beyond some income level, further average income growth is unlikely to drive sustained increases in contentment. I think it's important to realise that they are three subtly distinct reasons, but they're all reasons why relative income matters. The first rising expenditure on fashion and branded goods arises from a concern for relative status per se. And if you are one of these people who don't care about relative status, you can exempt yourself from the adverse impacts of that potentially happiness-reducing effect. But number two, you can't get out of, because number two has nothing to do with a desire for relative status per se, it is the fact that your absolute standard of living depends upon the relative income of others. Even if you are quite happy for everybody to have, everybody else to have just as good a house as yourself, you still need to win the relative income competition to get the absolute standard of house you want. And thirdly, congestion externalities. These are ones where what is occurring is not just a competition for a limited supply, but a process where rising average incomes degrade the quality of some forms of consumption. All of these, in different ways, make happiness or well-being or welfare logically a function of others' incomes as well as our own. And the first two effects together make it obvious that we should expect the empirical finding that within any one country at any one time, the richer are happier than the poor. That is what you would expect as a result of a competition for relative status. And it is for finding completely compatible. Indeed, it is based upon the same logical uh, inputs as the finding that the increase in average income of an entire society will not, on average, make that society uh, happier. So the changing pattern of consumption I believe logically changes the relationship between increasing income and human contentment. But I think it's also likely that there are important and subtle changes occurring in the nature of productive activity, in what people do. And a crucial distinction here is that which Roger Bootle, in his recent book, The Trouble with Markets, makes between creative activities and distributive activities where creative, as he defines them, are those which increase the net real income available for consumption on desired products and services, while distributive are those which are involved with winning an increasing share of income at the expense of others. Now, as Bootle points out, this distinction in economic activity between distributive activities and creative activities has always existed. Uh, think about a divorce lawyer. Uh, when a divorce lawyer wins, uh, commits their skill to winning on behalf of one client, uh, they do not uh, increase uh, the net sum of human happiness, uh, nor even the net sum of real income, though they might if the GDP figures are confused, and I'll come back to that uh, in Lecture 3. They essentially redistribute money from one person uh, to another. And indeed, as Roger points out, this is a more pervasive phenomenon than you might think. Uh, actually, if you think about a lot of what a salesman for a company does or an advertising for a, for a brand does, 
In its first order effect, it is fundamentally distributive. It's attempting to take money from another company and bring it to this company. So the defense of the market economy has never been that all economic activities are in and of themselves value creative. It has simply been that by some indirect process, the process of competition between activities, many of which as a first order effect are distributive, will tend over time to produce an increase in creative outputs. The market economy creates growth through that mechanism, not because everything that everybody does is in itself creative. So that's not new. But Roger Bootle suggests that, and I quote, the more developed a society becomes, the more it is at risk of behaviours that merely distribute rather than create value. And I think he's onto something there. I think it is highly likely that the very process of us becoming richer creates more opportunities for fundamentally distributive economic activities. Certainly, I think it's the case that financial services, the process of trading, involves a hell of a lot of purely distributive activities. And the role of financial services in our economy has relentlessly improved over the last 30 years, which will be a key subject which I will discuss in Lecture 2. A lot of legal activity of litigation is essentially distributive, and it's a feature of richer societies that they tend to get more litigious. And I think quite a lot of brand competition of the nature that we now see it, the brand competition between Celebrity A's perfume and Celebrity B's perfume, is essentially distributive and distinct in its economic function from the function, the original function of branding, which was a creative economic function of enabling people to understand a high-quality product and to distinguish it from the low-quality and often indeed dangerous products uh, which were in the non-branded arena. So I think Roger Bootle's argument that the economy has now got more distributive activities may well be right. How much of it is made up of distributive activities, I simply don't know. I think it would be an extremely good subject for research, and of course I've therefore achieved the main aim of any academic lecture, which is to identify the need for more research. But I do think it is a reasonable hypothesis that it has grown. And as it grows, it has a noticeable feature, which is it is noticeable that these distributive activities are often very highly paid activities. And there is something about distributive activities and the way that the output, the private marginal product of distributive activities can be rapidly measured, which may mean that they tend systematically to be highly remunerated. And I think it is therefore probably a feature of a rich developed societies that many of the highest paid people and presumably therefore the most highly skilled people devote their activities, devote their skills to activities where still higher skills cannot possibly increase human contentment. I mean, ask yourself if it was the case that suddenly, spontaneously, more people of higher skilled wanted to become divorce lawyers and the skill level of divorce lawyers went up. Suppose that occurred. Would human happiness increase? No, the nuclear war between divorce lawyer A and divorce lawyer B would simply become more uh, intense. But that is essentially what happens in a depressingly large amount of some financial activities. 
So, in a number of different ways, therefore, I believe that an increasingly rich economy is likely to be one in which both on the consumption side and on the production side, we devote our activities to zero-sum and distributive competition, in which relative income and status is crucial to individual well-being and relative skill crucial to success in competition for higher income. Given those changes, I think it should not surprise us that there is a disconnect between increasing measured income and increasing contentment, particularly since in this environment where relative income is becoming logically more important, inequality has tended to increase in most rich developed economies and to do so along two dimensions. First, to different degrees in different uh, developed economies, particularly in the US, but to a degree in other countries as well, a fall in the position of the lowest decile or the lowest quintile relative to the position of the median in society. Secondly, and this is in a sense more universal across all market economies, a rise in top decile income <coughs> relative to the median and a rise in the top 1% relative to the poor rest of the top decile, a rise in the top 0.1% relative to the sadly only reasonably well-off rest of the top percentile, and this making the rest of the top 0.1% really sad, uh, a soaring level of income of the top 0.1 and 0.0001%. Uh, now, why have these phenomena occurred? <clears throat> The first phenomenon has, of course, been very extensively researched, and I won't go through it in detail now. It seems that some combination of the nature of technology and changing large demands for low-skilled jobs, plus the impact of globalization and freer movement of factors of production, whether they be capital, labor, and to a degree, labor through immigration, have, for systematic reasons, reduced the marginal product of uh, low-skilled people, and that that very process itself, by weakening categories of labor market discipline, labor market unionization, has then produced a powerful second-order and knock-on effect, uh, which derives from a reduction of trade union power and the increasing flexibilization of, labor, of, of wages. So I think there is both fundamental factors of work and institutional factors at work, but with the institutional somewhat endogenous to the fundamental. But it's the second which has been somewhat less analysed and where I'd like to say a few words on it because it strikes me that there may be four reasons why this tendency which we see is inherent to rich developed societies and they are these. First, celebrity rents. The tendency right at the top of the income distribution for celebrity in arts, in popular music, in sports, in books, to be massively more paid than it was 50 years ago. Stanley Matthews, great star of 1950s British football, never earned an income which put him beyond a nice middle-class standard of living. David Beckham is in the super-rich. C.S. Lewis, very nice lifestyle. J.K. Rowling is a billionaire-ess. So what is going on here? Well, partly 
It's to do with technology, the ability to create a global brand, to make David Beckham a brand in Nigeria uh, as well as in Manchester. But also, crucially, I think what is going on is that as average income rises, so does the discretionary income which people can devote to the merchandise or the products of their beloved celebrity stock. David Beckham is vastly richer than Stanley Matthews because ordinary kids and adults in Britain have enough discretionary income that they can pay for much more expensive tickets and they can pay significant brand premia simply to buy the brands which happen to bear David Beckham's name. The higher the average income, the higher I think we will see celebrity rents. Now, you may think that is small in its impact, and in and of itself it is. But I think once you add the agents and the lawyers who serve these people, their PR firms, the luxury goods providers, the luxury restaurateurs, the luxury hoteliers which provide them, you have one among the factors creating a pervasive tendency for an increase in income, not just at the very top, but within the whole of the top decile or so. Indeed, again, it was Lionel Robbins who presciently noted the fact that uh, uh, one of the reasons, he says, why we have rich people is that they serve the needs of other rich people. The second factor is an increasing potential for rapid value creation. The more that we are devoting our expenditure to buying things which are defined by style or ambience or fashion, the more that a clever entrepreneur for a, with a sense, you know, a, a, an inherent feel for style or ambience or fashion can rapidly create private value. Some of the people who have got richest in the UK are retailers. The point about retailing is you can very quickly, if you understand how to do ranging and ambience and get the right stuff in the store, create massive value for your retail company. You can gain a competitive advantage. And you can do that far more rapidly than in manufacturing, where the process of gaining an advantage depends on the steady accumulation of R&D and product development over many years. So I think there are some aspects of how we change our expenditure which are likely to create increasing potential for rapid value creation. Finally, I think there are rapid, highly remunerated distributive activities, particularly in the financial services, to which I will turn my attention in Lecture 2. But then what kicks in is a sociological and political process of cross-comparisons, changing social attitude, and the role of agents on behalf of principals. The way in which, once you have a large number of celebrities earning billions, their lawyers earning millions, the retailers earning tens of millions, then to the poor old CEO on a few hundred thousand, it's pretty obvious that they, because they're a good and capable person, ought to be paid similar amounts as well. And there is a circular process whereby underlying factors and changes in sociological assumptions about what is reasonable and what is the comparison iteratively change the overall pattern of the level of inequality. So I think there are some fundamental things going on here which are perhaps inherent to rich developed societies. It may be that rich developed societies are inherently 
have a tendency to become more unequal. And I'll return in Lecture 3 to what, if anything, we do about that. But, of course, that raises the question, does inequality matter? Um, I think inequality was being discussed. I saw it in one of the newspapers the other day, and a columnist said, the ordinary person doesn't give a damn what Wayne Rooney is paid, so inequality uh, doesn't matter at all. Well, does it? Well, I think the easy bit is to say that if inequality takes the form of the bottom end of the income distribution falling away from the median, and if it falls away to such an extent that it hardly participates at all in the rising real income of society, then that must matter. And that's not just a theoretical case. That is actually pretty much what happened to the bottom quintile and bottom decile of the U.S. income distribution over the last 30 years. So that even if we're not concerned about these issues of relative status or congestion externalities or uh, competition for locationally specific uh, positional goods, uh, this must matter simply because it must be the case that more income uh, would have been of greater value for some of these people at the bottom uh, than it was when it accrued all to the top. And that means, as uh, Tony Atkinson uh, has uh, argued, uh, that actually if we want to aggregate incomes across all of the uh, society and produce one aggregate figure, and again, within Lionel Robbins' uh, essay, there is uh, uh, some very perceptive comments on what a difficult thing to do that is with any precision, that if you want to do it, you are better to use the logarithm of the geometric mean of income than of the arithmetic mean uh, of income, and that on that very simple calculated basis, over the last 20 years, there has been no increase in aggregate a US GDP per capita at all. Simply how we weight uh, the average increases of different groups can make a hell of a difference. But that doesn't answer the question as to whether inequality matters in and of itself. Because it might. It might matter more generally, and it might matter even if the poorest groups are participating, at least to some significant extent, in rising absolute income. And of course, the proposition that it does matter is that which has been put forward uh, by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson in their recent book, The Spirit Level where across a wide range of indicators from life expectancy to obesity, uh, levels of community trust to violent crime, teenage pregnancy to environmental sustainability, they identify and illustrate with scatter diagrams an adverse impact of income and wealth inequality. And let me show you just a few of their charts. Uh, an index of health and social problems which aggregates many of the others they look at very strongly uh, correlated, as they suggest here, to income inequality with the US an outlier on the upside. Uh, mental health and uh, inequality, not such a tight relationship because we've got some interesting outliers on the downside, but some significant relationship apparently there. Imprisonment and inequality, again, looks like a significant relationship. And interestingly, if you do it for states of the US, within America, a very significant relationship. And they argue that there are two things going on in these correlations. First, direct consequences for health, happiness, and social trust 
of intense relative status competition. The sense that people are made directly unhappy by living in a highly unequal society where relative status competition matters a lot. Secondly, the diminished ability of unequal societies, because they lack trust, because they lack a sense of common citizenship, to coalesce around the achievement of those elements of increased welfare which are only achievable via some category of collective action. Now, these uh, correlations, this book, has been hailed by commentators across the political spectrum, but criticized by some others. It has been noticeably hailed uh, last November by David Cameron, who cited this research and argued in, uh, in his conclusion that the best indicator of a country's rank on these important measures of life expectancy, crime levels, literacy, and health is not the difference in wealth between the countries, but the difference in wealth within the countries. And that, of course, tied together with a dominant argument which was very much to the fore in the conservative proposition before we went into the financial crisis, when our economy seemed to do well, which was that despite economic growth up to 2007, we were a broken society with all these social uh, problems. On the other hand, it has been criticized by others. Charles Moore, a conservative and conservative with a large C commentator, has dismissed it as more of a socialist tract than an objective analysis of poverty. Now, my own assessment of the more thoughtful criticisms and commentators on Pickett and Wilkinson is that they have made some good points, but not by any means enough to undermine the fundamental proposition which Pickett and Wilkinson put forward. Uh, like John Kay, uh, in an article in the Financial Times a, uh, about a few weeks ago, uh, I see four reservations that you would have to have uh, on their analysis. The first is that the correlations vary in strength. Some of them look strong, some of them less strong. Secondly, that you can argue which way some of the correlations are. Uh, is, uh, are the southern states of the US doing badly on high school dropout rates because they're highly unequal, or highly unequal because they've got high uh, dropout rates? Thirdly, it's always very dangerous to have any single explanation of what is going on. Simply looking at their charts immediately suggests other things that might be going on. For instance, as between the US and at least the Scandinavian countries with their data taken from about 10 or 15 years ago, you see a higher level of trust and community spirit in those Scandinavian countries, even beyond that, which would be suggested by the inequality correlation. And I think that raises the important, though unsettling, difficult issue as to whether trust and community cohesion is easier to achieve in somewhat ethnically homogeneous societies, which, of course, was the concept which Robert Putnam uh, put forward in his book. Finally, I have to say, and I agree with John Kay here, that while uh, Pickett and Wilkinson argue that the impact of inequality is so harmful uh, to human happiness that even the people who are the beneficiaries of it uh, suffer from it, i.e. that those investment bankers with enormous bonuses are going home deeply sad about the inequality of our society. I have to tell uh, Kate and Richard that I do not think that this is true and that I think that there is a very significant ability 
at the very top of the income distribution to largely detach yourself through spatial distinction, through the way that you travel, through the places that you go to, from the problems which inequality might create. But that still leaves us, I think, with an argument that inequality is to a degree a problem in rich developed societies. What we do about it, I will come back to in lecture three. But it must be the case that there are some problems created by it, and it must be the case that relative status does matter. I know that relative status matters to some degree to my happiness. Um, and I think it matters for most people I've ever met. Uh, I've probably met a few saints to whom it doesn't matter, uh, but most people I've met are not saints, and they care about how they're doing relative to others. So that if you were to ask me on the left-hand side, and I've got a sort of choice between a Rawlsian a, uh, veil of ignorance, whether I'd like to earn £25,000 per annum today, which is the average income in Britain today, or £20,000 per annum in today's terms in 1950, which would put me pretty much uh, towards the top of the income distribution at that time, I find not much difficulty in believing that faced with that choice, I might prefer the one on the left. Or indeed, if you ask someone, do you want £10,000 in a society where the average is £10,000, or 11000 where the average is £20,000, I think it's not all that difficult to think that many people might answer that they prefer the top option. Inequality must matter to some degree, and I think that is one reason why growth in itself uh, has, particularly if accompanied by increasing inequality, is unlikely to make people happier. But of course that raises the issue as to whether inequality should matter. Should people care? Or is worrying about inequality simply envy? Because if you look at the right-hand one there, and you think about it in sort of utility schedules, what has happened is that that extra a £10,000 of somebody else's income has entered this person's utility schedule as a negative factor. Uh, he positively dislikes the fact that the other person has £10,000. And uh, Marty Feldstein, in his recent presidential address to the American Economic uh, Association, called this spiteful egalitarianism. Now, that is a philosophically contestable point of view, but whatever one's point of view one takes philosophically, I think the point is that for an economist, we need to understand people as they are, not, what they, not as we wish them to be. And if it is the case that uh, people do care about inequality, that is something that we at least need to understand. And indeed, my key message in this lecture and the others is that economics, economics after the crisis, needs to continually understand people as they are, not we, as we assume them to be, or not we, as we have modelled them to be. And once you understand people as you are, as they are, one of the fundamental frameworks by which we think about the relationship between income and utility uh, changes fundamentally. So very quickly, we start with a marginal utility schedule, and in fact I meant this one to be still uh, a little bit upward sloping rather than completely flat, so consider it upward sloping a bit. And by the way, it may be more upward sloping when we think in aggregate consumption terms, because although I'm reaching satiation on one product, there are new products coming into play. But 
It is probably the case that even with those new products, there is some concept of aggregate diminishing marginal utility because there's some product concept of aggregate satiation of us simply caring less, as I said, about an iPad than we care about being free from hunger. Then, however, crucially, we need to add the process of adaptation, the process by which once we have achieved a certain level of income, we need that income level to be just as happy as we were before. So Bruno Frey and Alois Stutzer set out this chart in which from any point, point one, you are on an upward sloping curve. Looking forward, income makes you happier. The moment you receive it, it makes you happier. But one month, two months, two years later, you're no happier than before. So that beyond some level, there is a flat line of long-term happiness as our marginal utility schedules themselves are a function and a moving function of the income already achieved. So that further growth in average income will not necessarily make us happier, but slipping back may make us unhappier. And by the way, slipping back may make us much unhappier because there's a lot of research that says that once people have a certain level of income and wealth, they really do dislike having that taken away from them. So that putting all these factors together, it may be that the structure of the marginal utility schedule looks like this. That for rich societies, we are simply rolling forward on a permanent flat line in which we should not expect higher income to make us happier, but each individually and as a society deeply resenting any losses of income from that which we are achieved already. Plus, with our happiness a function of our relative as well as absolute income, a fact which I was clever, if I was clever enough I would have managed to put into this chart as well, but I couldn't work out how to put it into two-dimensional space. Now, if that is the pattern, the instrumental conventional wisdom which said growth will make us happy, markets help deliver growth, and inequality which results from markets is justified because and to the extent that it helps create growth, that instrumental justification, that instrumental wisdom, uh, conventional wisdom, has lost all its power. So, finally, what follows from this? What you might think follows is a sort of radical green egalitarianism. It would be anti-growth, because growth is of no value. It would be radically egalitarian, because on this uh, marginal utility schedule, we'd be much better to take income from the richer people and give it uh, to the poorer. And it would be deeply suspicious of markets because we know that markets have some tendency to create uh, inequality and uh, we don't need them because we don't need them for growth. But I fear I'm going to disappoint radical green egalitarianisms because I do think there is a justification for the market economy and for a degree of inequality which it inevitably produces. But I think that justification is a quite different and in a sense more fundamental justification than the instrumental one which has dominated the last 30 to 40 years. Now, that alternative justification I will set out in Lecture 3. But as a sort of sneak preview, the essence of it is twofold. The journey matters not the destination. There is no particular reason to believe that 
Increasing income from where we are at the moment will on average make us happier, but we would be unhappy if we didn't live in a society of continual change, continual new ideas, continual entrepreneurships, continual improvements in efficiency. Most people who've thought about it do not believe that they will be made permanently happier by next year's fashions, because if they are rational, they will be aware that a year later they won't be seen dead in next year's fashions, that they are, as it were, caught in a continual process. But lots of people would feel poorer if there were not a world in which fashions and styles continually changed. Given that I know that I am not permanently happier with the array of electronic gadgetry that I have today than I was with the much more limited range 20 years ago, I do not rationally believe that in 20 years' time, or even in two years' time, I will be permanently happier because I then have the latest array of electronic gadgetry. But if you told me that that's not going to occur, I would lose something. I would lose a sense of change, of dynamism, of invention, of technology and entrepreneurship for its own sense. Now, that, of course, is a culturally relative statement. But it is a culturally relative statement which I think is inescapable from the world of the Great Transformation. Because the Great Transformation took us from a pre-modern world in which that was not that assumption to one in which that is our assumption. And I don't think we are going to put that genie back in the bottle, and I do not particularly want to. When uh, Tennyson, in his great poem, uh, Ulysses, wrote, Yet all experience is an arch wherethrough gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever as I move, I can't prove to you that he had in mind the fashion in which the marginal utility schedule continually flattens as a process of adjustment to levels of income and experience already attained. But I think he was expressing a Victorian sentiment of life as a continual process of exploration, both geographical and technological, which is inherent to our culture, to our modern world. The second argument is on economic freedom as an end in itself. The fact, as Amartya Sen has written, that freedom to choose what to produce and what to consume and where to work is an end in itself quite apart from any culmination outcomes that it may produce. But those two things I'm going to turn to again at the end of lecture three. Before that, lecture two deals with the issue of means. Is it the case that if we did want further growth, free markets are always the best way to get it? Or do they produce other effects? And in particular, what is the impact of financial market liberalization and of the very significant increase in the scale of financial markets which has occurred over the last 30 years? But before turning to that, to end today, I simply end with my conclusion. The instrumental conventional wisdom in which growth produces human happiness, free markets are justified because they produce growth, and inequality is justified because and to the extent that it delivers growth, I think that uh, instrumental conventional wisdom has entirely lost its power. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you, Adele. What a wonderful beginning. Uh, we'll, we've got, uh, let's say, about 15 minutes for questions. Who would like to go first? Sir. Yeah. I can't tell you how disappointed I am with your lecture uh, for the following reason. I had understood that you were a person who understood the absolute uh, need for society to come to terms with the fact that climate change is upon us and the links between economic growth and the deteriorating condition of the planet uh, leading inevitably as we go along in this way by pursuing growth to the demise of life on Earth and certainly with it the inhabitability of regions of the planet, I would have thought would have featured far more significantly in, in your lecture. Indeed, as an overriding co consideration, you refer to. I, I, think, I think we've got your point. But, but, <laughs> Thanks, no, I think I, please, just, it, is, it is important. It, it, it seems to me absolutely essential that climate change is not a consideration that you uh, uh, put over to the third lecture, but is the overriding consideration, the pursuit of economic growth, which does not differentiate between that growth which is good for the future and that which is bad for the future, seems to be mindless, okay. absolutely thank, mindless. Thank you very much. Well, all I can say is there is a section in lecture three called good growth or bad growth <clears throat> and there is a section on climate change uh, and there is a discussion of the possibility of catastrophic change and there is an argument that uh, when you do that the discount rate which we should apply uh, to the future becomes a negative discount rate and therefore an argument uh, that <clears throat> even if Nick Stern had calculated that the loss to growth uh, from mitigating climate change was very, very much higher than the 1% to 2% he suggested, it would still be a logical and rational action uh, for us to a, uh, accept that cut of uh, growth. So I do think you have to accept that when someone sets low over a, a three-stage lecture, uh, the lecturer has the right to decide <laughs> in which lecture they deal with which subject. Okay, thanks for that. <laughs> no, no, hang on, hang on. Next person. Upstairs. Yep. I have a comment and a, and a question. Just quickly, my comments. Uh, on your last slide, you, you mentioned economic freedom as an end in itself. Um, I feel that sometimes that is used as an excuse against redistributive policy because, you know, by taking away from the rich, it reduces yep. their economic yep. freedom. But equally, uh, we're talking about freedom for the rich or mm. by redistribution, freedom for the many. Um, and then my, my question, you mentioned during the lecture two sorts of economic activity, one creative one redistributive. Now, uh, what practical ways could a government either by itself or in coordination with other governments use in order to boost uh, the creative activities and reduce the uh, redistributive activities, be that through reducing the pay that people in redistributive activities get so, so they allocate themselves to the creative ones or through some other means? Thanks. Um, well, two good questions. I am going to attempt in uh, Lecture 3 to somewhat address the issues of what you do about uh, inequality, though I have to say I have no clear resolution of it, uh, apart to say that many of the stories we tell about what we can do uh, on inequality are not convincing. 
Um, it is not convincing to say that we can entirely fix it by investing in skills. I do not find that argument convincing. It is not convincing uh, to say uh, that uh, 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 it doesn't matter as long as there is uh, equality of opportunity, because actually, as Michael Young argued in The Rise of the Meritocracy, I think an entirely uh, meritocratic society could actually be uh, a deeply nasty one for those people who lose out within it. Um, and I also argue um, that some of the arguments we use against redistributive income taxes, uh, that they blunt incentives, are probably not true uh, because, because of the very fact that relative income matters. Uh, if what relative income matters uh, to people, then the fact that you uh, impose a high marginal tax rate on them uh, is much less likely to produce uh, less work or less effort uh, than in uh, other circumstances, because what matters to them is their relative income relative to the next person. However, I also talk about some constraints, and I end up believing um, that there is an issue here which is fundamentally political, and that it does raise incredibly complex issues about what is fair, which are the, the, the issue which Will Hutton is attempting, and I've not yet quite worked out whether he's successful in his latest book to get to grips with. My basic theme will be that there are issues here to which Pure economics does not give us definitive answers. So I don't have clear answers, but I agree it's an important question. On the creative and distributive, I don't think we have any perfect ability to, to shift uh, that, uh, uh, that pattern. But I think, uh, and this will be one of the key things that I will talk about in Lecture 2, um, if it is the case that the financial services have generated quite a lot of distributive activities, then there are things that we can do through effective regulation to reduce the extent to which that occurs. What I'm not convinced is that you can do it uh, by the regulation of pay. Uh, that, I arrive at that conclusion for the same reasons that I would never have wanted to be appointed head of a prices and incomes board. I do not think you can control inflation by imposing prices and incomes controls in an environment where fiscal and monetary policy is set to produce an over-rapid increase in nominal demand. And I do, th do not think that you can control uh, the uh, high levels of pay arriving from distributive activities if those distributive activities are fundamentally occurring. But in Lecture 2, I will address some of those issues. Uh, concentrating on what you said in this lecture, ah. uh, as, far as, as, as far as I can, um, you described maximizing GDP or GDP per capita as, as the overriding objective of public policy uh, um, for governments, uh, developed country governments in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, uh, a question and, and my observation, which you might know, if that were the case, I mean, governments and politicians are not stupid, not in the respect of, of what maximizes votes in any case. So um, if it really were the case that actually that wasn't what we wanted them to do, uh, why did they do it and why did we vote for the ones that seemed to be claiming that they would do it better than the other guys? Uh, my two observations, first of all, uh, um, that it seems to me that uh, um, actually your running to standstill point has quite a yep. lot of force in it. It's yep. and, and we simply do the thought experiment, well, suppose we yep. didn't care about growth and we had GDP growth of 0% for 10 years. Do we really think that Britain would not be an unhappier place at the end? Yep. Uh, that's one observation. That yep. You do actually need to run at a reasonable rate of standstill. And the second point is related to your point about loss aversion. 
which is that people care about losing rather more than they, uh, they lose a lot more welfare from, uh, from slipping back than they do from going up a bit. Um, well, if that's the case, actually, if you think about an economy with, uh, uh, with overall growth in average incomes of 0%, then probably 30 or 40% of the population yep. is growing backwards, and that's pretty bad. You think about an economy with average growth of 2.5%, well, only 5 or 10% of the population is going backwards, and that's livable with. So there are actually some pretty powerful reasons why, in order to keep happiness at the level it is now, governments need to do a pretty good job of keeping GDP per capita growing at a reasonable rate. Thanks. Uh, well, there are some issues there which I will try and pick up in Lecture 3. I mean, and you are right. I mean, in Lecture 3, for instance, I argue that, uh, you know, we can't be indifferent to the rate of growth. It, it, you didn't mention this one, but there's almost a sort of, if you have economic freedom, you need to have a certain level of growth. And it's this. If you have economic freedom, people will use that freedom to do things more efficiently. If you then don't have aggregate growth, you will have involuntary unemployment. And involuntary unemployment is very clear from the happiness research, makes people deeply unhappy. So the maintenance of a reasonable level of employment uh, is, I think, clearly important, and that has some consequences. Secondly, uh, every now and then we get into situations... Uh, from which we need to grow uh, to get rid of a, a, a fixed costs which otherwise uh, would impose a distributional conflict. From the position we are in at the moment and having got it to a situation where, where we are accumulating very large uh, government debt, it is incredibly difficult to get out of a high level of government debt without growth or without uh, expenditure and a, a income uh, expenditure and tax effects, uh, which will produce setbacks to people's already accrued uh, wealth. What I think is the difference, though, comes down to this. I actually think that if you run the economy uh, to have a reasonable degree of economic freedom, reasonable financial stability, and reasonable flexible labour markets, you will probably tend to end up with around 2% growth. But I attach no particular importance whatsoever to whether it ends up as 2 or 1.9. And I don't think we will notice that. So to give two specific examples, uh, under the previous government, there was a fixation at a time with national productivity, uh, which got fixated on the issue of retail productivity, because various studies showed uh, that uh, the productivity gap between the UK and the US was very heavily focused in the retail sector. And this was then used as an argument why, whether or not pe local people wanted it, there had to be a national planning guidance to encourage large out-of-town retail developments because this would drive national productivity. This strikes me as the sort of growth-maximizing objective that we should not have. As I will argue later, those sort of decisions are best made by local people in relation to local circumstances into which some concept of a national productivity imperative should not enter. In addition, it is undoubtedly the case that in the arena of the financial sector, an argument was put forward, and I'm going to doubt whether this argument is true, that by some complicated process of market completion, a financial innovation and sophistication and greater liquidity would somehow marginally increase the growth rate. Now, I question whether that was ever going to occur, but the argument I put forward in Lecture 2 and Lecture 3 is if that came with, brought with it 
any significant danger that it also, it also created instability, a rational person would vote for stability and would sacrifice that last increment of taking our growth rate from 1.95 to 2.0%. So although I agree with you in many ways, I think it does actually change some important aspects of public policy. Thank you. I want to uh, have a comment on your, um, on your argument for growth um, based on this process of innovation as opposed to the instrumental convention. Um, and that is, could you think of ways in which we could continue to innovate in ways that would increase human welfare and would be engaged in a process that wouldn't necessarily be related to economic growth. So innovation in terms of social, spiritual, other arenas. Um, yeah. um, I think that's a very, very good challenge. Uh, it's a, a slightly different one from what you were going to ask, which I have had a shot at in uh, at lecture three. Um, but it goes beyond it. I mean, the question I ask in lecture three is whether underlying this flattening utility curve, even in economic activity, there are some things which still have the capacity to improve human welfare, such as, for instance, medical advance, uh, better health care, longer life expectancy, and the removal of uh, you know, premature deaths, all of which show up in the happiness research very strongly, some which are where the marginal utility curve is, is flat, and somewhere there are clear adverse consequences of uh, economic growth. So I think the question I'm going to raise there is, uh, are there such differences? Yes, almost certainly. Uh, do we have any capacity within uh, a political choices to make the ones which are better for human welfare? Question mark. I think you've raised a very interesting question is to, and I'm sure it is the case, that that desire, that what I call the, that, that modern uh, desire for innovation, uh, change, technology, new ideas as an end per se, uh, could that be achieved in ways that still give to people this, as it were, buzz of, uh, you know, a uh, experience as an archway through, um, uh, but without that even being anything to do with what we consider economic growth? Um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting challenge. It isn't in Lecture 3. I might put it there by the time I get to Wednesday. <laughs> uh, I think we should uh, uh, stop at that point since uh, you're going to have a chance later on to answer some more questions uh, tomorrow and the day after. I think this has been a wonderful start to this series. You've raised some totally, in fact, the totally basic questions about the direction of our society, and I hope everybody here uh, is able to come along uh, tomorrow and the day after to get at least uh, some of the answers that you're going to be providing. Uh, as a happiness uh, vulture, um, uh, it seems to me you've made a wonderful case for uh, the main aim of social science uh, being to uh, explain uh, what does produce uh, happiness if some of the things that you have uh, said don't produce happiness. And I'm just thinking what a shame it is that you're no, no longer chairman of the SRC. Um, but uh, you've got about five other jobs, so that's quite understandable. Um, this lecture uh, that's been given uh, will go up um, in written form on the LSE public uh, events page. Um, 
and there'll also be a podcast and a, uh, an online video uh, that you can find there if you want to look at it again or rela- uh, tell your friends about it in case they're coming tomorrow and couldn't come today. And now we have a reception for everybody just along the way. And Adele, thank you very much. Thank you.